Hello, herpetologists. Welcome to episode 114 of Herpetological Highlights. I'm Tom Major. Co-hosting with me as ever is Ben Marshall. And in this episode, we're going to talk about some big old snakes. The biggest snake. Well, the longest snake. Longest snake around. The reticulated python. For now. For now. I think yes, it's, only, for now. it's only a matter of time. Pending evolution. Perhaps, uh, you know, perhaps some cataclysmic event will increase the oxygen concentration in the atmosphere, raise the temperature, and once again, Titanoboa will reign supreme. But <laughs> I think that's probably quite unlikely. One can dream. But before we talk about reticulated pythons, I think we should talk about me, because because <laughs> 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 I was on TV yesterday, and uh, yeah, I was on BBC Springwatch. Yeah, I didn't see any reticulated not... pythons on BBC Springwatch, were they? <laughs> yeah, no, they didn't make the cut. But uh, yeah, it was uh, an episode of BBC Springwatch, which uh, if you're not in the UK, it's like a program that runs for a few weeks every spring, and they... Uh, just talk about everything that's going on with wildlife. There's like a live show and then they have like a load of sort of little video segments. And one of those video segments was about me and the master student who works with me, Lauren Jeffrey. And yeah, we got to be on TV. We did a whole day of filming with them a few weeks ago and I thought it turned out incredibly well. I was so chuffed with it. It was awesome. They had the drone up. There was like some really cool shots of us like walking down a field, radio tracking Escalapian snakes. There was like shots of us like hunting for the snakes in hedgerows. Yeah, it was just a really, really nice piece. I'm like so thrilled that it exists. And yeah, the BBC crew that came were just like consummate pros. It was such a cool experience. And uh, yeah, had my whole field team over to watch it. And uh, yeah, we all loved it. It was brilliant. So um, yeah, I was thrilled. I'll put a link to the show notes if you want to um, watch it. It's about 35 minutes in. If you're not in the UK, the BBC are quite strict about who watches their content. So you'll need a VPN, but that's doable. But yeah, just had to mention it because I was just buzzing about it. It was really, really cool. Yeah. And now we've both been on BBC television, Ben. (laughs) Both snake related too. Yeah, exactly. It's legit. But yeah, couldn't not mention it. It was super cool. Yeah. uh, Yeah. I'd love to be on TV more. But anyway, that's enough about me. Let's talk about some reticulated pythons, shall we? So we actually had a patron request from Paul Duran. So thanks very much, Paul. Awesome. Much appreciated patronage. And the paper we found about reticulated... Well, I should say, Paul was very specifically interested in the island forms of reticulated pythons because I think he keeps some little island reticulated pythons and he just thinks they're super fascinating and he wanted to have a better grasp on the science behind these sort of tiny little island ones unfortunately due to the nature of scientific investigation there's not actually that much written about reticulated pythons it was a bit of a struggle to find a paper at all wasn't it um i mean it always is i mean you what are you talking about you're talking like there's thousands of species of snakes out there and probably several hundred undescribed ones it takes a lot of effort to study them it takes even more effort to study them in a way that produces a paper that's interesting to talk about and is well done. <laughs> so, yeah, it's very true. And we try and keep things relatively up to date. I mean, this we're only jumping back to 2017, so it's not too bad. But uh, it's difficult. There's a lot to learn. There's a lot of diversity. And um, not everything's been as studied as it should be. Pretty much everything is understudied. 
Yeah, exactly. However, we have managed to find a paper, and this paper is by Murray Dixon, Ghazali, Ogden, Brown, and Aulia, 2017, Phylogeography of the Reticulated Python, Conservation Implications for the World's Most Traded Snake Species. And this was published in PLOS One, so it's open access. If you want to read it yourself, check it out. You'll you'll find the uh, citation in the show notes. And so, yeah, we're talking about reticulated pythons, which are the world's longest snake, right? They grow yeah. to realistically Big. like seven or eight meters long eight meters long certainly has been recorded which is like 24 feet we were talking about that big one a few weeks ago in the sideshow in kansas they oh, get massive yes. yeah they're truly truly massive they're a widespread south and southeast asian species found on numerous islands in the indonesian archipelago as well as countries like thailand cambodia laos and vietnam and the name the scientific name of this species is malaya python reticulatus Reticulatus means made like a net, and that is a reference to the <laughs> net-like dorsal pattern on the made backs like of this species. Mm. I did not know that was the origin of that. I always just felt it was one of those words that just meant what it meant. Yeah, yeah. No, I didn't. And actually, uh, that really helps explain it. It does look like a net. Mm-hmm. Everyone was always like, yeah, it's a reticulated pattern. It's yeah. like, what do you mean? Exactly. It feels like reticulated was the base word there. But it's not because it doesn't mean anything. Well, it does. It means made like a net, but reticulated alone. It means, it means made like a net, I guess. But yeah, I was always like, oh yeah, reticulated pattern. Cool. Like to me, it was just the pattern on the back of a reticulated, reticulated python. python. That was kind of yeah. like the base standard for what reticulated yeah. meant. And any other animal which had reticulated in the name, I was like, yeah, yeah, I kind of guess so. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Anyway, yeah, they're big whoppers. They're big whoppers. And um, yeah, as large snakes, they have a really good dispersibility. They can sort of travel to inhabit new places. They'll swim across the sea over geological timescales, of course. And uh, yeah, I thought it was quite interesting. That's a funny way of phrasing it. Like they'll colonize new places over geological timescales. The individual snakes still swim at a reasonable pace. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's fair You say it that way, it's like a very slow moving. (laughs) And here he is setting off in the Triassic. (laughs) <laughs> when we'll, will he arrive? We'll be back in several million years to see if he makes yeah. it to the other side. No, they don't have lifespans that long. They probably only live to be sort of, I guess, 30 or 40 years old, unfettered. But yeah, they do have a good dispersibility. As Ben said, it takes time, but not for the individuals. But yeah, they found one on Krakatoa, that island that was completely annihilated by volcanic eruption. After 30 years, they found a reticulated python there. And they think it was a one that got there naturally from swimming from other Mm -hmm. neighboring islands in Indonesia. But, you know, a lot of what they talk about in this paper is the fact that humans love picking up reticulated pythons and carrying with them. As we'll talk about a bit more, they're traded for their skin. People also have eaten them historically. They've also got sort of medicinal purposes. So it's not entirely unfeasible that the one in Krakatoa was dropped off there. Yeah, they were also mentioning they were scooped up onto ships for rat catching duty for journeys, which I find quite amusing. (laughs) That's quite nice. Yeah. That'd be really cool, actually. Pet reticulated python on the ship. <laughs> uh, yeah, so talking about their, obviously the title of this paper, World's Most Traded Snake Species, the vast majority of that trade, there is some trade for um, captivity for the pet trade, but the vast majority is for skins. So 350,000 reticulated python skins are traded every year completely legally. That's probably a bit of an underestimate well, of how many you, are actually mm, traded. I feel like that was quite a bold claim there, completely legally, because that's that's documented sufficiently to pass like CITES. That doesn't necessarily mean that it's all completely legal in the sense that they came from where they were perpetrated. You know, told, said they came from. 
Oh, just that they yeah, pass the true. checks. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, what you're saying is like sometimes there'll be like illegal illegal cross border trade. So say that like Indonesia has a quota of I don't know what it is like a hundred. It's a lot, like a hundred thousand reticulated python skins. For what? Sorry. For where? Indonesia. Yeah. Oh, oh gosh, I don't it have it. So I don't have it summarized by country. I've got no. it separated by. Just region. as an example. Yeah. Say there was a country that had like 100,000 in their quota. If they weren't managing to catch that many in that country, perhaps the stocks have been depleted through over-harvesting. What they'll do is they'll the traders will take skins from another population somewhere else, like say Thailand, for example, and then bring them into Indonesia to be shipped out so that they appear on all the documents to have come from Indonesia, but actually they've not come from Indonesia. That's like a common way that traders will circumvent those rules. So as Ben said, yeah, it's by no means... A completely transparent legal trade, but on paper, three hundred fifty thousand skins are traded legally, so to speak. Um, so it's a heavily traded species, right? And, and yeah, the, the sort of other sort of legal, non-legal aspect of it is not just origin in terms of like country, but origin in terms of wild caught versus captive. So. Let's say you're only legally allowed to export captively bred reticulated python, pythons or, you know, their derivatives. You go out, you scoop some from the wild, push it through a farm, say that it was bred there. Then it's exported legally, even though it wasn't captured and sort of created legally as such. Yeah, and all of these skins are destined for the fashion trade. People still like wearing snakeskin, even now in 2022. I would say if you see someone wearing snakeskin, just throw red paint on them. <laughs> well, and then just start screaming about murder. I do have my little, uh, you know, you get those little tester pots. Just oh, keep yeah. one of those in your pocket. Yeah. yeah. Snakeskin boots. Dash your red paint on them. You're scum. Yeah. <laughs> I think so many people are so naive to the, the nature of these trades. And yeah, I mean, yeah, fashion. Fashion is just a sort of ethos is wow just i mean in my opinion just pretty dumb <laughs> i why can't we just wear loincloths do you know what i mean well i mean you first bro <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit chilly here for loincloths i think it's the disconnect isn't it that's really the issue you know it, it's it's the hidden costs you know if, yeah. if i don't know I don't know. It just feels like if you make it all more apparent. <laughs> yeah, I know. And like, there's the other to, side of to... it, which we've kind of talked about before with relation to trade, which is like, you know, potentially there is there is potentially a sustainable livelihood for Me. certain people and groups, which, you know, who the hell am I to take that away from someone? So, yeah, there's kind of many facets to this kind of argument. But as we said, 350,000 at least traded every year. And there's been declines of this species in Bangladesh, Indonesia, Laos, Malaysia, Myanmar, and the Philippines. So that's kind of the scene which we've set where this paper takes place, because the idea was, right, we know this is an animal which is traded heavily. We want to have a first look, a little glimpse at the genetics of this species, how they vary across the various populations in South and Southeast Asia, and try and get an understanding of whether or not there is variability that would be worth conserving yeah that's the kicker isn't it it's the worth conserving sort of aspect of it because there is a you know the automatic assumption is okay there you go reticulated pythons as this uh homologous whole you take a They're python from one location is equal you know is equally as valuable or as another like they're interchangeable 
So if there was a decrease in one location, you could sort of move some from place A to place B to sort of repopulate place B, and you're not really losing anything particularly special. And it's the whole fear is that there is hidden diversity, hidden hidden sort of specialization that we're ignorant of. So if you are depleting a population in place B, you can't replace that population because nothing else is quite the same. Nothing else has been quite specialised. It could be something quite subtle, like the way they're sort of living in the environment and, and interacting with other species, you know, little subtle genetic changes, or it could be something more dramatic in terms of morphology, or maybe they're, they're beginning to split off into their own separate species, so you're, you've got this genuinely different lineage appearing. And it's really just through lack of study, we don't know about it. And it would be an immense loss to lose that by accident, because we're not, you know, (laughs) we're assuming that one python's the same as another python, you know. Yeah, exactly. And we're talking about a species with a huge range, so it wouldn't exactly be surprising to see there was some variation. And there has been some progress in understanding the kind of small island populations of reticulated pythons. Back in 2002, there was a paper by Aulia et al., um, Alia, one of the authors on this paper, in fact. And um, they actually named two subspecies from islands in Indonesia. So they found that on the island of Tana Jampia, which is known to its inhabitants as Jampia, there was a subspecies that was unique. And similarly, there was another one from... Was it Timor? No, it was uh, Selayar, which is... um, an island in Indonesia and sort of also from southwest. So there was one from Jampia and one from Selayar and um, southwest Sulawesi. And um, those are sort of islands in the south of uh, Indonesia. And they basically, yeah, they did a little bit of genetic work, similar to the genetic work on this, just one gene region. But they also did some morphological stuff. And they found that there were a difference in the number of scale rows across the body and also the number of belly scales underneath the snake and there's also some differences in the coloration which kind of set them apart and the coloration isn't usually used anymore to like sort of distinguish species from each other but it is something not which is like in the e- sense, e- not in the sort of first degree but i think it's frequently used <laughs> in sort of like field iding if there are oh yeah you know differences in coloration and it's the kind of thing which we can actually look at and immediately understand yes it's just we recognize things like that. So it's, it's good to know. Um, yeah, it's really nice. So it was quite interesting because um, obviously these are island forms and they are actually smaller than uh, Python reticulata, uh, Malayo Python reticulatus reticulatus, the original big pythons. So the ones from um, Tana Jampia or Jampia as the people there call it, they have almost no yellow pigmentation. Instead, oh. they're kind of predominantly this silvery gray and brown ground color. And they're also quite a lot smaller. They don't really tend to exceed much more than three meters, which is, you know, less than half the size of the big ones from elsewhere. And the ones from Salaya, the ones from Salaya were even, were a little bit bigger. They grow to sort of four meters, but they also look a bit different. Um, They are very golden and yellow and they have golden eyes. And yeah, they don't tend to exceed four meters. So they're another kind of island dwarf subspecies. And they called that one Malayopython reticulatus saputri. 
So yeah, you've got Maleopython reticulatus saputri and Maleopython reticulatus champianus from these two islands. And they're these kind of two island dwarf subspecies that have varying patterns from the larger original species and they also are smaller. So there has been some kind of understanding, at least in those two sort of island groups, that there is a bit of variation in the pythons. But the likelihood is if you were to look at other islands in the same, you know, under the same kind of microscope, you'd probably see similar differences mm-hmm. and may end up naming more more subspecies. But yeah, going back to the kind of overarching paper, the one that we're talking about, they're using cytochrome B, this gene region, to kind of try and pick apart whether or not there's variation across the whole range of reticulated pythons. And they themselves say, you know, like, this is one gene region. It's not the most thorough genetic study you could undertake. It's very much like a kind of snapshot first glimpse, like, let's take a look. Let's have an idea of whether or not there is any variation. And if there is, it's something to build upon. But they found that there was quite a significant variation among reticulated pythons from different areas, didn't they? Yeah, I mean, the broad picture is, I mean, I suppose the most nice way of summarizing it is you've got a western group and an eastern group now the distinction between the western and eastern group is a little bit messy but broadly your sort of eastern group is hanging out in the philippines and then your western group's covering everything from you know southern indonesia all the way up into thailand but within that western group you've got a few like little structures potentially i think Sulawesi is the most interesting there so Sulawesi sits on the wrong side essentially of the wallace line instead of being on the eurasian side it's on the australasian side so you would expect a species existing in you know on mainland eurasia not to make it to Sulawesi. but there we have these reticulated pythons over there and it does seem like there is some sort of distinction between the ones existing on Sulawesi and the ones existing in the rest of this western clade that covers everything from Thailand down to like Sumatra and Borneo. Which is, you know, you were saying they were good at dispersing, potentially. And uh, I think that is sort of reinforced by them popping up on Sulawesi and having this, this sort of separation is it does suggest some sort of colonisation at some point, right? Yeah. yeah. You mentioned the Wallace line there. Mm-hmm. Just going back to that, that is like this stretch of deep water in Indonesia between Bali and Lombok that basically even when we had a lot of glaciation on the earth and all the water or a lot of the water in the seas was sucked up and turned into ice and sea levels dropped, it was so deep that nothing really could cross it. So yeah, it's a very significant boundary to lots yeah. of wildlife. Apart from all the animals that fly in the face of it. It's treated like it's yeah. a line, like it's this distinction, but it never... I mean, it isn't. <laughs> you know, it's just there is greater distinction between the sort of diversity on one side to the other than other places of similar yeah. geographic distance, right? It's not a hard yeah. rule. <laughs> no, it's no, it's it's far from a hard rule. But I think, but um, especially when you compare like... If you compare Bali and Lombok and then other islands in Indonesia that are similarly distant, distant yeah. apart, they have significantly less similarity yeah. between the fauna. And that's really all it is. Yeah. It's interesting to see the sort of similarities and differences between different species in the same area. And it potentially hints at different dispersal abilities or evolutionary sort of histories that got them to where they are. Yeah. Like our pythons making it to Sulawesi. Yeah. 
Yeah, but as you've said, there's kind of this broad east to west divide. And yeah, I mean, they talk about Ambon a little bit, don't they? Ambon potentially yeah. being a human-mediated introduction. So Ambon's even further east than Sulawesi. Yes. Yeah. Do we need to sort of better better situate people? How, how familiar are people with the the islands of Indonesia and people are probably not at all familiar with the islands of Indonesia. I mean, I'm I, I've heard of Let's them. Let's do a but... quick rundown. Okay. Let's start from from Eurasia, and you've got the the Malayan Peninsula heading down south of Thailand, right? And it sticks out, yes. and right on the very end is Singapore. You head a little bit further south, and you've got Sumatra, and that sort of curves around very big island that curves around the bottom of Indonesia, leading into Java. And right above those guys, you've got the big chunky island Borneo. It's got, you know, jumps into a few other places that aren't Indonesia. Further north of that, you've got the whole mess of islands, which is the Philippines. Very distinct, tends to have a lot of endemic species up there. So south of Philippines, but east of Borneo, that's your Sulawesi. It's a weird shaped island. It's like four different peninsulas all stuck together. And if you still got south of that, the Indonesian island sort of swooping round below it. Further east, you've got New Guinea, Papua New Guinea, those guys. In between New Guinea, Sulawesi, and the rest of Indonesia, you've got Ambon. So it's south of the Philippines, east of Sulawesi, north of the sort of final islands in Indonesia. Yes, that's a great description. And I, I think- hope it helped. <laughs> It helped me. To be honest with you, it, Indonesia, yeah, it's so complicated. The biogeography of the region is like pretty, pretty hard to wrap your head around. Yeah. But yeah, the interesting thing about Ambon is that it's not really similar to Halmahera. The reticulated pythons are not really similar to the ones in Halmahera, despite the fact that that's like the closest place. They're more similar to ones from sort of like, let's say... Uh, like Singapore and Sumatra, right? Yeah, Singapore, yeah. Sumatra, even Thailand's not that dissimilar. Yeah. So... The theory is that there's a lot of introduced species on Ambon, but have been there for ages. But it was a popular route for um, Chinese trading vessels, like back in the day. We're going back to like 1300, 1400s. So um, it's thought, it's believed that the reticulated pythons in Ambon probably came across with traders on ships, perhaps as you described, Ben, you know, for rat <laughs> catching rat purposes. Catching friends, yeah. Or maybe they were just for food, or maybe people back then recognized the beauty of reticulated pythons and thought, ah, oh, yeah, come on my boat with me, mate. Yeah. And yeah, they got introduced that way, which is cool. I mean, I love stuff like that. I think it's really nice when you have a paper which is like this, you know, just looking to sort of understand the conservation of a species and then it throws up something mad in their population genetics. Like, well, that one, that one's got no business being there at all. Yeah, well, especially when you're talking, you're talking about Halmanera there, sort of next door. Those guys are nicely nestled in the in the eastern, eastern clade, which is basically Philippine... Uh, retics like that's <laughs> that's what your eastern clade is it's it's all those islands to the northeast and you've got the ambon sitting there that's yeah looking different i mean the other thing that's worth mentioning or reminding people of because it's only a single gene these sorts of patterns might not be nearly as pronounced when you start mixing in other stuff like these it is easy to read too much into <laughs> these sort of separations it certainly warrants further investigation for sure but it's not like a closed case that right all oh, right the amber ones are weird they seem to be re more related to these far 
Western ones, something must have happened, human mediated or some weird dispersal event. It might not be that. It might be that they're actually far closer to the Palmonera and Philippine ones than this study's suggesting in other genes. So it's, Absolutely true. Yeah. yeah. The book is still open. The case is still open. But, yeah, uh, the case is still open. As they say in this paper, they're very upfront about it. Mm -hmm. Look, this is a snapshot. We have concerns about reticulated pythons and the way they're traded. And, you know, we need to start considering this more closely. This paper was five years ago. I would hope that there's more work going on with this. Oh, I'm sure there is. I'm positive there is. Yeah, I'm sure there is. I mean, you don't, you know, things that are giant and charismatic tend to not be completely ignored. So I hope that, uh, yeah, there'll be some follow ups to this. But yeah, you know, as a snapshot, yes, there's intense, um, well, there's likely to be large genetic variability across the range of particular pythons. There's been a couple of subspecies described already. Perhaps there's, there'll be more to come. But um, yeah, keep an eye on them and uh, don't wear snakeskin. Yeah, I think that's really the takeaway from this in some regards is there is definitely some interesting structure going on between the pythons in these different areas. Okay, it's still early days, but it's kind of really highlighting <laughs> you shouldn't be treating them all as this amorphous blob of python. And I don't know, yeah, you, you look at some of the numbers coming out of places and you think, you know, these are, these are small, small islands. Okay, we, we highlighted the dispersal ability of these reticulated pythons, but you take a lot of pythons for an island, it's going to take a very long time for them to come back and you're going to have lost some sort of uh, specialization genetically yeah. from that island. Yeah. Okay, well, thanks to Paul Duren for the uh, suggestion that we do some stuff about island reticulated pythons. I hope that was interesting. And let's move on, shall we, to our species of the bi week. Yeah, let's do it. Okay, so we have a paper entitled Between a Rock and a Dry Place Phylogenomics, Biogeography and Systematics of Ridge-Tailed Monitors by Pavon Vasquez, Esquire, Fitch, Marianne, Doughty, Donnellan and Kjof. And this was published in 2022 in Molecular Phylogenetics and Evolution. So why have one biogeographical paper in an episode when you can have two? <laughs> Yeah, but I don't think we're going to go too far into the phylogeography. I think we're more interested in the new species, aren't we? Yes. Yes, we are. And I mean, yeah, it's from the Varanasacanthus complex, the Aki monitors, the spiny tail monitors, extremely charismatic, cool little monitor lizards that inhabit kind of rocky areas in Australia. I feel like the description of charismatic is losing all meaning on this podcast. <laughs> Because it's quite literally every species we discuss, we, we're incredibly endeared to and find just very like charismatic. And stuff. Yeah. Yeah. But nevertheless, there's been a new species described, and uh, what have they called it? Citrinus? Varanus citrinus. Varanus citrinus. Yeah. And that the species epithet means related to lemon trees which is pretty cool and it refers to the bright yellow throats of males of the new species and they proposed the common name golf ridge-tailed monitor or golf ridge-tailed goanna and uh, yeah it's only known from the basins of a couple of rivers the macarthur and the calvert quite a big range already they know that there's like 200 kilometers at least of area between two populations they're not sure exactly how much land they cover but it you know it's seemingly quite a large area and yeah, there's a bit of variation in the species. They really are pretty yellow, particularly as the name would suggest. 
or as the description of the name would suggest, the males have a nice yellow throat, but they've got the same sort of like stocky little arms and tiny little head and cute chubby tails of other sort of Aki monitors. And how long are they? Well, holotype uh, was 186 millimeters SVL. Oh, and then a bit more, probably another 20 centimeters for tail, I guess, or uh, maybe another 15. Something. Tail length was 282. Hmm. That's cool. Was that with tail length? No, that is just. Yep, that is tail length. So exceptionally long tails. Hmm. Just classic, classically monitor lizard, I would say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're from this kind of tropical monsoonal region, complex mosaic of woodland where they live. Um, they're found on kind of rocky hills and sometimes uh, riparian areas near rivers. The original one, the first one that was used to describe the species, was found in a tree limb. Others have been found on rocky outcrops in the trenches of pipelines that are being dug across the land or under... <laughs> Large drums, <laughs> I guess oil drums. <laughs> no, it's this Varanus made drums. That's yeah. just part of their ecology. Renowned drum yeah, maker. Yeah. Makes up for the lack of vocalizations. But where are we in terms of like northeast, south, west? Northeast, right? Northeast, yeah. Northeast. Yeah, we've got a lovely figure, figure eight. And it's Varanus SP Gulf Coast. Other that is a really nice figure. I like the shadows behind the uh, picture well, monitor lizards they've put up. Sorry, it's it's, it's straight north rather than northeast. That's straight north. Story or story that's northeast east. Oh, you're quite right. Yeah, yep. those those colours are very similar. Yep. Yeah, yeah, it's dead centre north, really, isn't it? Yep. Really close to the coast of Australia, relative to the size of the landmass. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and beautiful. Really cool little species. Do we know much about the ecology of this species? Not really. Not just the fact I that it was found saw. under a drum. But, you know, Aki monitors in general are insectivorous predominantly. And, uh, yeah, they're just hunting for whatever they can catch in the uh, rocky outcrops and probably jamming themselves in the rocks and using their little spiny tails to protect themselves from anything, trying to grab them out. <laughs> cool. Yeah. Great. Well, uh, yeah, I think that's probably about it for this episode. Do you have any other business? I don't. No. Cool. No, nor me. So, uh, yeah. Thanks again to our patron, Paul Duren, for the suggestion. And if you'd like to become our patron, you can at patreon.com slash highlights. We're on social media and you can email us if we've got anything wrong, you want to correct us, or if you want to ask us a question or anything like that, herphighlights at gmail.com. And yeah, I think all that remains to be said is thanks for listening. Yeah, thanks for listening.